Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. Did I embellish my resume? Yes, I did. And I'm sorry. And it shouldn't be done. But I'm still the same guy. I'm not a fraud. I'm not a cartoon character. I'm not some mythical creature that was invented. Republican Congressman-elect George Santos admits much of the life story that helped get him elected was fiction. But there's a very good reason Kevin McCarthy will do nothing about it. Also tonight, what to expect when Donald Trump's tax returns are finally released. We already know that some years he paid nothing in federal taxes. And if you missed it over the holidays, we'll dig into the January 6th committee report. Plus Christmas cruelty. Governor Greg Abbott dumps hundreds of migrants into the bitter cold of Washington, D.C. on Christmas Eve as the Supreme Court keeps Title 42 in place. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jonathan Capehart, in for Joy Reid, and we begin the readout with the bewildering tale of George Santos. The incoming Republican congressman from Long Island has finally admitted that the New York Times is right. He was not honest about his resume. On Monday, Santos broke his silence and copped to embellishing huge portions of his biography. Um, according to Merriam-Webster, that's called a lie. You know, when someone makes an untrue statement with the intent to deceive. What did he lie about? Well, he didn't graduate from Baruch College or NYU. He didn't work for Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, as he claimed in his biography. The New York Post, which got the first interview with Santos and is owned by Republican-friendly Rupert Murdoch, also called Santos a liar. In subsequent interviews, Santos defended his actions by saying everyone embellishes their resume. I'm not a, a criminal who defrauded the entire country and made up this fictional character and ran for Congress. A lot of people overstate in their resumes or um, twist a little bit or engrandate themselves. I'm not saying I'm not guilty of that. I'm just saying I've done so much good work in my career. That's not all he admitted to lying about. Last month, Santos, who is gay, claimed in an interview with the NY, WNYC Public Radio, quote, we lost four employees that were at Pulse nightclub, the horrific shooting at the gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. This week, he changed his tune. Did anyone who worked for you perish in the Pulse nightclub shooting? That worked for me directly? No. <laughs> That's just scratching the surface of what he was not honest about. But despite all of that, the congressman-elect remains defiant. In one of those interviews, he said, quote, I will be sworn in. I will take office. One big reason he's so confident is because the incoming Republican majority is so thin, they need all the votes they can get. One of those new members, fellow New York Republican Nick LaLota, who will fill a vacancy left by Lee Zeldin, has called for, quote, a full investigation by the House Ethics Committee and, if necessary, law enforcement. Kevin McCarthy, 
The guy who wants to lead the Republican caucus as the next Speaker of the House has said nothing. One reason he's kept quiet? Mr. Santos tweeted his endorsement of McCarthy for Speaker only hours after the New York Times told him they were going to expose his lies. An endorsement he seems to have deleted. Joining me now, Susan Del Percio, Republican strategist and MSNBC political analyst, and Dean Obidala, host of the Dean Obidala Show on Sirius XM. Thank you both very much for being here. Susan, let me show you, let's put up uh, element one. House GOP leadership aides tells the New York Post they knew about Santos. As far as questions about George in general, that was always something that was brought up whenever we talked about this race. Uh, This is the second time he's run, and these issues, we assumed, would be worked out by the voters. Susan, if everyone knew, why didn't it make a huge splash until the New York Times reported on it? Well, because the the scuttlebutt was is that he was just a big talker. I don't think anyone expected to see this these many lies. But, you know, everything that you you outlined in your intro, Jonathan, I think that's the least of Santos's issues. What he's going to be should be concerned about is if he's a fraud and a liar and he, quote, lent himself six hundred thousand dollars and he doesn't have the money to pay his rent right now. Where did that six hundred thousand dollars come from? Mm-hmm. That money needs to be tracked down immediately because that is going to be one of his biggest problems moving forward, not just with an ethics investigation, but potentially law enforcement. Because when you're lying on those disclosure forms, that's not just the ones with the intent to run for office. But once he does get sworn in, if he decides to go all that way, he's going to get looked at under a microscope. Mm hmm. Right. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why incoming Congressman LaLota said uh, how the ethics investigation committee needs to look into it. And, you know, there might maybe even law enforcement. Dean, you have a you have a uh, uh, not a theory, but you have an explanation for why we're just finding this out, all this stuff out about Santos, don't you? I did. I wrote about it for MSNBC. But can I just say. George Santos is a self-made man, and then he self-made himself up. We have never seen anyone <laughs> like this in our entire lives. This is, uh, this is like the Milli Vanilli of politics. And at least Milli Vanilli, they took their Grammys away. He's keeping his congressional seat. What I wrote about for MSNBC, though, on a serious note, is that since 1996 Telecommunications Act, that allowed more deregulation of the media and more media ownership and concentration. Local journalists have been gutted. They've been laid off. Uh, there's been mergers so that you have less and less local reporters on the beat there. So you had a small paper in North Shore, Long Island, that broke this story during the campaign, one element of it. No one else picked it up. The Democratic candidate who ran against him, Bob Zimmerman, who I emailed with, said he tried to raise it. No one else would pick it up. The big paper in Long Island, Newsday, didn't even have a sit down with him in 2022. It was an interview for the editorial board. He just, they just republished their 2021. And it seems like because of budget cuts or a lack of resources, so that's part of the problem. Less local journalists, more George Santos in the future. That's the scary part of this. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about um, Kevin McCarthy. Let's play um, what he had to say. Um, well, when he name dropped, gave a shout out to George Santos during the campaign. Watch this. I really want to talk about who's the makeup of this new majority. You heard from some of all already. You know, with Max Miller in Ohio, George Santos in New York, and you had David Kustoff from Tennessee get reelected. He introduced him. 
Do you realize we have the largest Republican Jewish caucus in more than 24 years? Not bad, huh? Okay, a couple things. One, I misspoke. That was after the campaign. So George Santos, at that point, had won the election. But I played that because Kevin McCarthy, Leader McCarthy, was, you know, very vocal, talking. There he is. We've heard nothing but crickets, Susan, ever since the New York Times story came out about George Santos. Why isn't Kevin McCarthy talking? Well, because Kevin McCarthy wants to become Speaker of the House of Representatives, and he needs every vote he can get. It's also worth noting that the group that uh, you showed there that McCarthy was speaking to was the Republican uh, Jewish, uh, not Congress, but association that backs Jewish candidates. Caucus, thank you. Committee. And what is even more interesting is that George Santos, guess what? Now he is Jew-ish. Not Jewish, because he's Catholic, but he is with an I-S-H at the end, so he's sort of. I don't know what that means. But Kevin McCarthy, he he's going to find himself in a little bit of bind since the local leaders in New York and on Long Island basically uh, gave Santos a pretty stern talking to. Not that it will make a difference. He'll still take the oath of office if it's available to him. Um, but... McCarthy's just it's just one more one more vote. That's all he sees. It's whatever he stays in power. And frankly, he's got other issues with, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Jewish space lasers. So this is just you know, running the caucus for for <laughs> for McCarthy. Right. And just want to point, RJC is Republican Jewish Coalition. We both coalition. got the, we Thank both you. got the C wrong. Republican Jewish Coalition. But, Dean, I mean, mm-hmm. what does it say about our politics? that a guy like Santos can be exposed as an out-and-out liar. Every aspect of his life is a lie. As Susan Rays just pointed out, where'd the money come from? This guy is so, like, stinks to high heaven, and yet the leader of the Republican caucus, the guy who wants to be speaker, won't say a word about it because he's desperate for that one vote. Have you heard of this guy, Donald Trump, Jonathan? Because he was a serial liar who attempted a coup, helped incite a terrorist attack on our capital, lied about everything. And Kevin McCarthy badmouthed Trump for a week after the attack and then went down and kissed his ring and has been the greatest defender since. Look, the GOP is about party at any cost. There is no principle anymore left in this party. And look at George Santos. Why would you think lying is wrong when the leader of the GOP, Donald Trump, lies every hour, continues to lie and the GOP base loves him. There are no consequences of Donald Trump's life. So, of course, you would follow him. And one quick thing about Susan, what she's saying, there is really, on his face, criminality here that has to be investigated. With, you know, George Santos said in 2020, his, his financial returns, he had zero assets. 20, less than two years later, he has $1 to $5 million in cash in his savings account. I was reading his disclosure form. He had a piece of property, he said, in Rio de Janeiro. And then just yesterday, New York Post said, I don't own any property. So on its face, you've got lies. You've got, he said he had a salary of $750,000, yet lent himself about $700,000 to run this campaign. There are questions about straw donors, money laundering. There are a lot of legal issues that must be examined closely here. There could be crimes. It could be above board, but there could be crimes. Mm-hmm. Susan, I, I, I don't know if you, you have the answer to this, but is there any recourse? 
Um, is there any recourse by the voters, by the state party to yeah. basically get George Santos, keep him, prevent him from taking that seat? Absolutely not. He was elected. Lying is not against the law or against the rules of running for office. As Dean just pointed out, we have Donald Trump. Uh, there, he will probably only be a one term if that member of Congress, thank goodness. But again, I just want to highlight that looking at that money is the real dangerous part for Santos. That's where mm -hmm. I think he could be a very short-lived member of Congress. He's going to go there, down there defiant. And just one other quick thing. Did you notice that the first thing that his attorney did when tr responding to the New York Times was call it a smear campaign? So mm -hmm. it's right out of Donald Trump's playbook. Right. Yeah. Smear that, you know, go after the media. That's none of, you know, you're just out to get my client. So... Not right. So Last word to you, uh, Dean, real quick. Look, I, I hope there's an investigation, but I'll say this. With all his lies and all this crime, say what you want about Santos. He's a real Republican. <laughs> Dean Obidala, Susan Del Percio, thank you both very much for coming to The Readout. And up next on The Readout, late today, the January 6th committee released more transcripts of witness testimony, including some names that will be very familiar to you. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The House January 6th committee released a trove of new information today, a new batch of deposition transcripts, including unreleased testimony from former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson and former White House aide John McEntee, who testified that Donald Trump wanted a blanket pardon for everyone involved on January 6th. Trump floated the idea and former White House counsel Pat Cipollone said no. The transcripts add to the 845-page report released by the committee Friday detailing the extent of Trump's plot to overturn the election, alleging that Trump or his inner circle engaged in at least 200 apparent acts of public or private outreach, pressure, or condemnation targeting state officials to overturn election results. That includes 68 meetings, phone calls, or texts aimed at state or local officials, 18 public remarks targeting them, and 125 social media posts. The report also provided damning evidence about Trump's state of mind during the attack. According to the report, as the violence was underway, a Trump aide, Robert Gabriel, texted someone, POTUS, I'm sure, is loving this. 
The decision whether or not to pursue criminal charges against Trump now lies with the Justice Department. But the committee made recommendations on how to prevent another January 6th from happening, notably urging congressional committees to examine a formal mechanism to evaluate barring Trump and others mentioned in the report from holding future office under the 14th Amendment. Joining me now, Charles Coleman, civil rights attorney, MSNBC legal analyst and host of the Charles Coleman podcast, and Tim O'Brien, senior executive editor at Bloomberg Opinion and an MSNBC political analyst. Thank you both very much for coming to The Readout. Tim, um, I think it's interesting that we have now, we saw reporting in real time, but now we have it in the report, a blanket pardon. Trump wanted a blanket pardon for people who were involved on January 6th. You're, you are an attorney. You know that. You hear that. It's in an official government report. What do you think that does over at DOJ? Well, people don't seek pardons unless they think they've committed a crime. And if the president of the United States is seeking a pardon for several to a multitude of people in his own administration, it suggests that he was worried he committed a crime or the people around him may have committed a crime or the people around him may be able to testify against him in a court of law. Uh, it's also interesting that his own attorneys advised him not to do this because I think it's, it, 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 it suggests guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it should surprise anybody that, that Trump sought to do that. I don't think it should surprise anybody that people in his own administration were looking for a pardon as the clock was ticking out on his tenure in the White House. But of course, the American public should worry about it because as the January 6th report showed, um, the January 6th event wasn't a single day event. It was premeditated. There was planning for it that began months before that date. There were activities that continued after that date. And it was a criminal conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And I think the act of seeking a pardon is just another indication of possible guilt. And, and Charles, I would love to get your view on that. But also in that in the transcripts, we have um, transcripts from a bunch of people, not just Cassidy Hutchinson, but Ali Alexander, um, the Stop the Steal organizer, Brad Raffensperger, Eugene Scalia, who at the time was labor secretary, and also Steve Mnuchin, who was treasury secretary. And in his transcript, um, he notes that they briefly discussed the 25th Amendment. And so you see there. So again, my conversations with Secretary Pompeo, it came up very briefly in our conversation. We both believed that the best outcome was a normal transition of power, which was working. And neither one of us contemplated in any serious format the 25th Amendment. We should point out that in, in um, Secretary Scalia's transcript, he denied conversations about the 25th Amendment. But you put all... I would love your le- your legal analysis of both this conversation, whether it was serious or not, about the 25th Amendment, on top of Trump saying, hey, blanket pardons for everybody. Well, you know, Jonathan, I think that there are two different ways to look at this. And Tim hit the nail right on the head with his remarks about the fact that a large part of what we are seeing here is a person who is embattled with the truth does not want to face it and is insistent upon using every means at his disposal to go about exploiting 
different parts of our Constitution and different parts of the law, albeit illegally, to try to maintain power. And I think that on a certain level, there's the shock and the awe that's associated with that. But legally, when you get into what the actual report says, you start to see how well coordinated an effort that this was and how widespread a campaign that it was and that it was extremely intentional and that there cannot be any question about the outcome that it was intended and engineered to affect. And so all of these things put together, particularly when you start talking about the 25th Amendment, whether serious or not, these are relatively obscure pieces of the U.S. Constitution that most people don't even know about, let alone openly discuss. And the fact that there may have been a discussion, to me, signifies and indicates that there was a clear intention to try to find a loophole try to find an avenue, a crack, a window, something that was going to allow Donald Trump to hold on to power, which he was not lawfully entitled to. Uh, Charles, let me get you on one more thing. And that's uh, that was Trump's state of mind. And as I read before, Robert Gabriel, a, a Trump aide, texted to someone else, POTUS, I'm sure, is loving this. Um, what does his state of mind, how does that play in, um, say, what DOJ is, could be considering in its own investigations into January 6th and Trump's role? Well, looking at it as a former prosecutor, Jonathan, what I will say is that anything that you can do to bring in the notion of state of mind, you're going to to bolster the question of intent. And in this case, if Donald Trump were to ever be tried, prosecuted, and this were to be litigated in court, one of the key elements that's going to be necessary for the government to prove is establishing the actual intent that Donald Trump had in affecting the outcome, which ultimately resulted. And so things like this, testimony like this, while another person is not going to actually be able to testify as to another person's frame of mind or what it is that they thought or intended at the time, what you can do is put this all together in a way that tries to paint a picture to a jury, to a judge, to a court that says, listen, this guy was fully aware of what it was that he was doing. He continued to do it. He had opportunity to stop it. And he didn't because he had the requisite intent necessary to commit the crimes for which he is being prosecuted for. Mm -hmm. And that's how you use that as a prosecutor. And, and ultimately, its value and its weight that Jack Smith is going to be looking at. Mm -hmm. Tim, NBC News is reporting that Trump's tax returns are going to be released uh, to the public on Friday. This is coming from the House Ways and Means Committee. And we already know from The New York Times uh, that Trump paid $1.1 in taxes during his presidency, but zero in 2020. Um, I would, what, <laughs> I'm just trying to understand what recourse does the, does the public have finding out that a former president of the United States paid, well, not only paid zero taxes in, in, in 2020, but we also know that the IRS didn't do it's fulfill its legal obligation to audit his taxes when he was president. Yeah, it left you a little speechless because you pay your taxes, don't you? And so it's strange <laughs> yeah. when a, when a self-proclaimed billionaire decides that he doesn't have to pay any. And as now that we have the documentation, we know that in some years he paid none uh, while he was proclaiming to stand up for average Americans who have to pay a big chunk of their own income in taxes. Um, I think what we know so far about the tax returns, there's a massive institutional failure at the IRS. There is supposed to be a mandatory audit of presidents. It 
Uh, it occurred during the Obama administration, and, and Biden has already been subjected to it, but somehow, magically, Donald Trump was not audited, even though he has a more complex financial picture and arguably more income than either one of those men. So why didn't it happen? It's either because the IRS is inept or it's because the IRS was in the tank. Either answer is not a good answer. So the IRS needs to be scrutinized for dropping the ball on this. More broadly, I think I think the, the, the larger problem we have with Donald Trump's tax returns are not simply the last six years of his tax returns, it's the last 30 years of his tax returns. We don't have a good picture on the kind of foreign or domestic financial influence that came to bear on him before, during, and even now, before and during his presidency, and even now. And this is not a partisan issue. If we believe in good government, whether a president is a Democrat or Republican, they should be financially transparent so we know that they are not conflicted when they're making public policy. And we still don't have enough years of returns from Donald Trump to get a full sense of that. And it remains a national security issue, and it remains an issue around good government. And I think this release should be the first chapter. It shouldn't be the last step. Tim O'Brien, Charles Coleman, thank you both very much for coming to the readout. And up next in the readout, the Supreme Court weighs in on ending COVID restrictions at the border as Texas governor tells migrants there's no room at the inn on a frigid Christmas Eve. We're back after this. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the Trump-era COVID policy that allows border officials to turn away asylum seekers, otherwise known as Title 42, will remain in effect for the time being. The court voted five to four to grant an emergency request by 19 Republican state attorneys general who filed a last-ditch request to keep the policy in place, with Justice Neil Gorsuch joining the court's three liberal justices in voting against the stay request. One of the states petitioning to keep Title 42 in place was Texas, whose governor, Greg Abbott, warned of total chaos if the policy ended. The same Greg Abbott who spent the holiday weekend dialing up the cruelty in yet another political stunt, dropping off several busloads of asylum seekers on the street in front of the home of Vice President Harris on the night before Christmas. About 140 migrants, including children, arrived in D.C. from Texas 
in 18 degree weather late Saturday, some wearing just T-shirts, others without shoes and jackets. One volunteer who spent the first couple hours of Christmas Day helping provide those people with a warm place to sleep and food to eat told Axios, quote, none of them knew where they were being dropped off. They have no idea they're part of this bigger political game. Joining me now, Julian Castro, MSNBC political analyst and former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, Secretary Castro, Julian, thank you very much for being here. You know, the White House put out a statement uh, reacting to Governor Abbott's gambit, a long statement, but in part saying this was a cruel, dangerous and shameful stunt. And this morning on Morning Joe, uh, Claudia Tristan, she's at Migrant Solidarity Mutual Aid Network. She's a volunteer with that outfit. Listen to what she had to say this morning. The most painful thing to watch, the children that are being thrown into this game that our political leaders think is going to resolve anything. Those children are the most innocent among all of this. There are real human lives in the middle of all of this who are becoming victims of his stunts, which, like this weekend, there's children, not even two years old, toddlers, that are stuck in the Mm. middle of all of this. You know, Julian, people not even knowing that that they were being dropped off here. Your reaction to just this situation, but also what Governor Abbott is doing here? Oh, Jonathan, it's an important point to remember. These are human beings. And it says something about Greg Abbott that he's willing to be this mean, this intentionally cruel, uh, to have people duped uh, into going to a place, being dropped off on the side of the road, uh, you know, without many of them, without even jacket on, including, as you pointed out, kids. Uh, And that kind of cruelty also says something, I think, today about the Republican Party and where it is that you have people like Abbott and DeSantis trying to figure out who can be the biggest jerk and thinking Mm -hmm. that that's the way they're going to get elected, perhaps in a 2024 Republican presidential primary. Uh, And so uh, Greg Abbott is somebody that has been angling to get on the presidential election track for a long time. I think that he sees this as completely consistent with that. He thinks he's scoring political points by doing that. And I really don't know what's scarier, the fact that you can have somebody that cruel, that mean in office in such a position of power, or that there's something underneath that, which is a base of the Republican Party that gets its kicks by this kind of cruelty toward people. Well, let's look at the the, the cruelty by the numbers. Here's how many um, people have been bussed up um, to Washington, D.C. You see there, as of December 22nd, more than 8,700 migrants had been bussed to Washington, D.C. from the Texas border. This is according to the governor's office, which says another 6,520 people combined were sent to New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia. And, you know, Julian, I look at these numbers and I look at the video of uh, of these families being dropped off. And I'm just wondering, where is the outrage? Not the entire Republican Party is so cruel to to think that doing this to, as you said, to human beings, to children, that surely, clearly there's someone left in the Republican Party to stand up and and say loudly and vocally that this is wrong. Well, I wish they would. And 
<laughs> there may be a few out there. I haven't heard their voices. They haven't been doing it very loudly, uh, but I wish that they would. I wish they would push back on this uh, because this type of action, these types of stunts, they really don't serve anybody. You know, they don't serve these migrants well. Uh, they don't speak to who we should be as Americans. They're not solving the problem. Uh, in any way. And they try to assuage the, the bad feeling here among some people by saying, well, we're sending them to these places because these are sanctuary cities that have a better uh, you know, infrastructure to, to care for them. Uh, Greg Abbott knows full well that that kind of care is going on here in Texas, and he hasn't invested in the care and the concern, the compassion that he could uh, in nonprofits, in churches, in other organizations that mm -hmm. very much <clears throat> like the assistance to take care of them here at the Texas border. Right. That just adds to the cruelty. You know, I'm wondering, can we get back to where we were, I guess, maybe 10 years ago? Remember when Republicans like John McCain and Lindsey Graham were part of the Republican effort for comprehensive immigration reform? Can we ever get back to a point where Democrats and Republicans can get together and do something something legislatively to solve to solve the problems at the border, because that's what's what it's going to take, isn't it? Uh, it? It really is. I mean, it's haunting in 2013, having 68 votes in the Senate for comprehensive immigration reform. But John Boehner would not allow that legislation to get onto the House floor for a vote. If it had, we probably would be in a very different position on immigration. Uh, I think it's probably going to have to be done piecemeal if we make progress, uh, perhaps with legislation for dreamers and other pieces where Republicans and Democrats may be able to come to some compromise. I wish that there were a, a more hopeful, optimistic uh, scenario for comprehensive immigration reform right now. I haven't completely given up. But also being realistic, I, I don't see that anytime in the near future. Julian Castro, as always, thank you very much for coming to The Readout. And still ahead on The Readout, NBC News chief foreign correspondent Richard Engel with a look back at a devastating year of warfare in Ukraine. Stay with us. The war in Ukraine has been raging for almost a year, and despite talks of peace from both countries, neither side seems willing to accept each other's terms at the moment. NBC's Richard Engel takes a look back at the past year of devastation and the Ukrainians' heroic resistance. Some of this video may be hard to watch. In the twilight hours of February 24th, President Vladimir Putin took to Russian state television to announce a special military operation that aimed to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. Minutes later, explosions rocked Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. Missiles rained down across the country, and Russia's massive military moved across the border. Putin's special operation was clearly war. Although Putin had long denied his intentions to invade his neighbor, he'd openly claimed Ukraine was part of Russia and demonized Ukraine's leaders. Putin had already illegally annexed Ukrainian territory, the Crimean Peninsula, in 2014 with little international backlash. This time, condemnation came quickly. Putin's choice 
to make a totally unjustifiable war on Ukraine will have left Russia weaker and the rest of the world stronger. Wide-ranging sanctions were rolled out, but they did little to deter. Russia's military, 10 times the size of Ukraine's, moved swiftly to surround Kyiv. But almost immediately, cracks in the mighty Russian army began to appear. Their advances stalled. The Ukrainians organized and fought back. Civilians banded together. Many took up arms to defend their country. It seemed Vladimir Putin hadn't accounted for this, the will of the Ukrainian people. Led by an unlikely hero, President Volodymyr Zelensky, the nation rallied behind the comedian-turned-politician, now wartime leader. Facing resistance and failing to capture Kyiv, Russia focused its attacks on eastern Ukraine. Moscow called it a change of strategy. For the Ukrainians, it was a major victory, but any celebrations were short-lived. As Russian forces withdrew from around Kyiv, evidence of atrocities and war crimes on a massive scale emerged. First in Bucha, the pattern would continue in other liberated areas. Ukrainian officials documented 50,000 alleged Russian war crimes. Russia has repeatedly denied its soldiers are responsible. Why do you think this is happening, that there are now thousands of allegations of Russian war crimes here? Thousands of them. Something was, you know, something was broken with, with mentality, with them. In the east and in the south, Russia's bloody campaign continued. With Putin's forces firing missiles and artillery to hammer towns and cities, often indiscriminately. U.S. officials estimate tens of thousands of Ukrainian civilians have been killed and 100,000 Russian troops killed or wounded. Ukrainians have soldiered on, backed by international support, including $20 billion in weapons and military assistance from the United States. Ukrainian troops have used it to launch a major counteroffensive, liberating large parts of eastern Ukraine. And then the southern city of Kherson, occupied by Moscow for eight months. As the Ukrainian military moved in, soldiers were given a hero's welcome. <laughs> President Zelensky called the liberation of Kherson the beginning of the end of this war. How are you feeling today, Mr. President? How are you feeling? Very well. How is this moment for you? The moment is very important. That is the biggest, the biggest city what was occupied at since 24th of, uh, you know, of February. So that is the biggest city and now it's free. So Ukraine came, so I'm happy. As the conflict nears one year, there's still no end in sight. Ukrainians fear the world is losing interest in the war as Putin employs a brutal new tactic, mass targeting Ukraine's infrastructure, just as temperatures plummet. He couldn't take Ukraine as completely or quickly as he'd hoped. Now it seems he's trying to starve and freeze the country into submission. Richard Engel, NBC News. Richard Engel, thank you. Up next, Joy recently spoke, spoke with the corn kid, whose love of corn made him an internet sensation and who's now using his viral fame to help others. We'll be right back.
Now, if you have been on the Internet at any point in the past few months, there is a pretty good chance you have heard the words, it's corn. Seven-year-old Tariq became a meme sensation after a video of him proclaiming his love for his favorite food went viral. For me, I really like corn. What do you like about corn? Ever since I, I was told that corn was real, it tasted good. Did you think corn wasn't real? But when I tried it with butter, everything changed. I hope you really have a corn-tastic day. A corn-tastic day? What? It's just a pun about corn. Just a pun about corn. That video captivated millions, including myself, prompting the creation of remixes and officially donned Tariq as the corn kid. Joining me now, I'm so excited, is the corn kid himself, Tariq. Hi, Tariq. Hi. Hi, how are you? Oh, I, okay, first of all, I'm your biggest fan. Uh, and I know that you are Corn's biggest fan. So I want to talk about how you became so famous. So you were out to dinner with your sister and your grandma, and some guys came up to you and talked on TV, and you talked on TV about how much you love Corn. How did you have so much confidence to talk on TV? Well, because I actually didn't know I was going to be on TV, but we actually didn't go out for dinner. My sister just took me to the food festival, and then, like, I'm drinking water, a watermelon drink, lemonade. Then, like, I was eating cone, and then, and like, Mr. Julian and Mrs. Julian came up and interviewed. It all happened. Well, so since then, you've gotten to be in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. You've gotten to do a commercial. I mean, you're like a really famous kid now. What do your family and friends think about how popular you are? Well, like my friends, like, like, like every time like something is going on, my, my, like my friends in school, don't always like like one of my like this friend Quincy, like she's like he's always saying you on TV and like and then like it's always gonna happen next and then he like he always watches the news. <laughs> I love it. Well, I love anyone who watches the news. I mean, that means they're really smart. Well, I heard another secret. So I heard you and I have something in common. And it's not the love of corn. It's Guyana. Is it true that your family is from Guyana or some of your family are from Guyana? Well, actually, me and my baby sister from America. But yes, the rest, like the rest of my family, except me and my baby sisters are Harvard, all from Diana. Well, that's true of me too. I'm from the America, from New York, from Brooklyn, and my parent, my mom was from Guyana. So we have that in common. Maybe you're my cousin. Maybe you're like, maybe we're like relatives. You never know. You never know. Yeah. Well, well, let me ask you this. Now, you did something really great for other little kids who are hungry during Thanksgiving, and you helped to make sure that they got lots and lots of food and lots and lots of corn. And I think that's a great thing. Did it make you feel good to know that because of your love of corn, other kids would not be hungry? Yes. It did. Well, what is your next move? What's the next thing that the corn kid is going to do? 
I have no idea. <laughs> uh, well, listen, I have an idea. I think that you're just going to continue to be amazing and adorable and famous for the best reason. And you know what the best reason is to be famous? No. Because you're a nice young man. You're just a nice guy, and we love you. We absolutely love you, Corn Kid. So thank you for coming and talking to me. You too. Okay, I have to say this. I hope you have a corn-tastic evening. Same. Same <laughs> to you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. That is the wonderful Corn Kid. He is Tariq, the Corn Kid. And tell me what your favorite food is, Tariq. Bone. <laughs> oh, I love it. Thank you, Tariq. Say hi to your family for me. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Tariq the Corn Bye. Kid. <laughs> Bye. It's corn. And that's tonight's readout. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.